Okay, good morning again. Yes, it's still morning. Um, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 24? And as you're turning there, I'm going to read to you a short excerpt from a little booklet by R.A. Torrey. It's called On Why God Used D.L. Moody. Now, R.A. Torrey was, uh, well, later president of the uh, Moody Bible Institute. And D.L. Moody was a great evangelist from America, former shoe salesman whom God used to lead uh, almost a million people to Christ in the late 1800s in the U.S. and here in the U.K. And so he wrote this little booklet on why God used D.L. Moody. And I just want to read to you one bit of it. The seventh thing that was the secret of why God used D.L. Moody was that he had a very definite endowment with power from on high, a very clear and definite baptism with the Holy Ghost. Moody knew he had the baptism with the Holy Ghost. He had no doubt about it. In his early days, he was a great hustler. He had a tremendous desire to do something, but he had no real power. He worked very largely in the, in the energy of the flesh. But there were two humble free Methodist women who used to come over to his meetings in the YMCA. One was Auntie Cook and the other Mrs. Snow. These two women would come to hear Mr. Moody at the close of his meetings and say, We are praying for you. Finally, Mr. Moody became somewhat nettled and said to them one night, Why are you praying for me? Why don't you pray for the unsaved? They answered, We are praying that you may get the power. Mr. Moody did not know what that meant, and he got to thinking about it, and then went to these women and said, I wish you would tell me what you mean. And they told him about the definite baptism with the Holy Ghost. Then he asked that he might pray with them, and not that they merely pray for him. Auntie Cook once told me of the intense fervor with which Mr. Moody prayed on that occasion. She told me in words that I scarcely dare repeat, though I have never forgotten them. And he not only prayed with them, but he also prayed alone. Not long after, one day on his way to England, he was walking up Wall Street in New York, and in the midst of the hustle and bustle of that city, his prayer was answered. The power of God fell upon him as he walked up the street, and he had to hurry off to a house of a friend and ask that he might have a room by himself. And in that room, he stayed alone for hours, and the Holy Ghost came upon him, filling his soul with such joy that at last he had to ask God to withhold his hand, lest he die on the spot from very joy. He went out from that place with the power of the Holy Ghost upon him, and when he got to London, the power of God wrought through him mightily in North London, and hundreds were added to the churches, and that was what led to his being invited over to the wonderful campaign that followed in later years. Now, when you read something or when you hear something like that, a story like that, you might have various reactions to it. One might be, that's weird. One might be, that's not biblical. One might be, why don't I have an experience like that? Or if the Holy Ghost comes upon me, do I have to have the exact same experience as that man? You see, we have all kinds of questions about the Holy Spirit. 
And what we need to do is we need to turn to the scriptures to find out who the Holy Ghost is and what he does. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as we are together in our time. So this is the the title of the message, Power from on High. The topic is the Holy Spirit, who he is and what he does. And we're going to be looking at what is referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit specifically. Now, as I said, there is some confusion among Christians as to who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. Sometimes just the very mention of the Holy Spirit makes people uncomfortable. But I believe the the Bible tells us all that we need to know about the Holy Spirit. And I also believe that we should never fear a genuine move of the Holy Spirit at any time and at any place, a genuine move of the Spirit. I also believe that the that the Bible teaches that there is a definite baptism of the Holy Spirit that God wants each one of us to have, not just once, but every single day. And I believe we need this power if we are going to serve God effectively. Now let me give you the outline that we're going to be looking at. If you're a note taker, you can write these four points down. Number one is striking the balance. Striking the balance. Number two, we're going to be looking at who is the Holy Spirit. Number three, what does the Holy Spirit do? And then finally, number four, how you can experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your own life. Striking the balance, who is the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit do, and how you can experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, I've had you turn to Luke chapter 24. We're going to pick it up in the 36th verse. But just to bring you up to speed in this chapter, here's what's taken place. Jesus is resurrected from the dead in bodily form, not just as a spirit, but in a physical body. There are two guys on the, on the road to Emmaus. Jesus pulls up alongside them and begins to talk to them and questions them about why they look so sad. And they said, well, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's taken place about this great prophet Jesus of Nazareth? We were hoping that he would be the Messiah, but alas, our hopes have been dashed because he's been crucified. He's been laid in the tomb. And he said, oh, slow of heart, you know, do you not know what the, the prophets have written? That Christ had to suffer and rise again the third day. And beginning at Moses and the prophet, he expounded to them all the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there at that Bible study? If we could add a CD of that, it would be amazing. So he stays with them a bit longer and then they stop at a house. Jesus is there. He breaks bread and then they recognize Jesus. And then he vanishes from their sight. Well, they immediately go and tell those who are assembled in the house, Jesus is alive. We saw him on the road. We recognized him in the breaking of the bread. And this is where we pick it up in verse 36 of Luke 24. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, 
that it is I myself, handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. Now, this is a stroke of genius, the Holy Spirit writing this, because obviously a spirit can't eat things. And so this is just proving that, again, Jesus rose up in a physical body. He ate of this honeycomb and the piece of broiled fish. And so then he said to them in verse 44, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. You know, he's still doing that today by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that the Spirit leads us into all truth. He opens our understanding of the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And they led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Now this last bit that we've read is what is known as the Great Commission. It's the commission that he gave to those who were assembled there to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel. But that has also been passed down to all of us. Because he says to them in Matthew 28, you teach them all things that I've commanded you. So that's what we've learned from them. Therefore, we also have this great commission. So what is the essence of the great commission? It's to go and share the gospel with the world. It's to tell of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about it, the church, by and large, we're talking about the global church. The global church exists for three purposes. Number one is to bring people into contact with God. So we can call that upreach. Number two, it's to minister to one another in love with the gifts of the Spirit that we've been given. Therefore, everyone gets built up. So that is what we can call in-reach. So you have upreach, in-reach, but the third purpose is outreach. So then we go out into the world to share the gospel. That's the essence of the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. So Christians are commanded to share the gospel. If Christianity is going to survive, it must share the gospel. Christians must share their faith. 
You know, Christianity is always one generation away from extinction. So we all have a baton that we need to pass down to the next generation in order to carry it to the next generation. But we only have our generation in which to do that. And so we could say this, that a local church that does not evangelize will eventually fossilize and die. Isn't that true? We've got to share our faith. So this is a great commission. This is the essence of it. But notice the scope of this great commission. We've seen the essence of it. What is the scope of it? Well, it says here in verse 47 that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to what? To all nations. Now you look at that and I'm sure those who were hearing this were thinking, what? All nations? Not just Israel, but all nations. That's impossible. I mean, Jesus, do you remember who we are? We're the ones who denied you. We're the ones who fled in the Garden of Gethsemane. We are chickens. We're scaredy cats. We're cowards. And you're telling us that we need to go out into all the world and share the gospel with every nation? That is an impossible thing that you're asking us to do. And you know what? Humanly speaking, it is. It is absolutely impossible. How can a former shoe salesman be used by God to speak to thousands of people and lead thousands to Christ? It's impossible. How can you and I, as just simple people the way we are, how can we be used by God in our generation to share the gospel? How can we? How can we do this great commission? Well, I want you to notice what Jesus says here. Look in verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So here's what he's saying. Guys, I want you to go, but you have to wait first for something to take place in your life. And when that happens, then go. So he's saying, go, but wait, then go. You need to be endued with power from on high if you are going to be a witness for me. What is a witness, by the way? A witness, a witness simply tells of what they've seen and heard. Right? So we tell other people of what we have seen and heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to be witnesses for Jesus. The first part of our outline is striking the balance. Now, there are two extremes that we can fall into regarding the Holy Spirit. Number one is we can become cessationists. Number two is we can become sensationalists. These are two extremes. Now, a cessationist believes that the sign gifts or the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit died out with the apostles and are not for the church today. In other words, healings, speaking in tongues, the gift of prophecy, that kind of thing, those sign gifts are no longer valid today, but they died out with the apostles. 
So God used those gifts to establish the church and write the New Testament, but they aren't around for us today. Now, some people will string will swing to that extreme because they have seen the abuses that have gone on in some churches, and they say, well, if that's the Holy Spirit, I don't want to have anything to do with the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that stuff takes place today, and they just kind of swing to that extreme. The other extreme on the other side is what we could call the sensationalist. The sensationalist is kind of like a spiritual thrill seeker. In other words, they believe that the Holy Spirit must do a miracle every time they go to church or they think the Holy Spirit didn't turn up that day. So they go to the latest Christian center. They get on YouTube and find out where the Holy Spirit is supposedly moving and they go there to get the anointing in some way. And they get as close to the stage as possible to this anointed speaker so they can grab some of that Holy Spirit anointing. They're looking for something amazing to happen every single time. Now, some people swing to this extreme because they believe that unless God does a miracle, people will not get saved. The problem with that thinking is this, that miracles do not produce faith. How do I know that? Because, and you read through the Old Testament, who are the people who saw more miracles than anybody else? The Jews. God showed them miracle after miracle after miracle in Egypt and in the wilderness. And you know what? Everybody who came out of the wilderness, out of Egypt into the wilderness, except for two, died for one reason, for unbelief. The only two who made it through there of that adult generation were Joshua and Caleb. They're the only believers. But all the other ones died, even though they'd seen all the miracles. Miracles do not produce faith. What miracles are given for is to confirm the word of God. And I know that from Mark chapter 16. The very last verse of Mark 16 says, And they went out everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So as the word of God goes forth, God sends the power of the Spirit And he may do miracles to confirm that word. Okay? The problem is when people chase after signs and wonders, they can be easily deceived. But I do believe that some people swing to that extreme of being a sensationist because they think that unless God does a miracle, people won't get saved. And that's simply not true. Now, I believe that we should expect the Holy Spirit to move. The Holy Spirit wants to move. He wants to work in power. We read this in Mark chapter 6. When Jesus went to Nazareth, his hometown, it says, Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So for some reason, the, uh, the ability of Jesus or Maybe the willingness of Jesus is better put. To do a mighty work was linked into their believing. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great preacher at Westminster Chapel in London for a number of years, a great evangelical in this country. And did you know that the BBC at one point wanted to televise 
the meetings that were going on there at Westminster Chapel. And Martin Lloyd-Jones responded to the BBC by saying this, How can you box in, in your time slot, what the Holy Spirit wants to do? He said, what if the Holy Spirit came upon me? What would you do with your programs then? He was unwilling to, to put the Holy Spirit into an hour time slot that the BBC wanted to put him in. I believe that Martin Lloyd-Jones was one who expected the Holy Spirit to do something powerful when he opened up the Word of God and when they had their meetings. And so he didn't want to box him in. But should we expect the Holy Spirit to do a miracle every single service? When you read through the book of Acts, the book of Acts covers about 30 years. And in the book of Acts, you have about 30 miracles recorded there. So you could say that there is about one miracle per year. It wasn't like they went to every single church service and had a miracle happen. But you can read the book of Acts in, what, 20, 25 minutes or so, or maybe a little bit longer, I don't know. And you think, well, this must be happening, well, 30 miracles, and I've just read it in a short amount of time. This should happen every time we get together. But that's not true. Christians who expect a miracle every service can easily become disillusioned. The Holy Spirit isn't here. He's not working. But you know what? His work is often less sensational. And I personally believe that the greater work of the Holy Spirit is in seeing a life that is transformed by the Word of God through time as the Holy Spirit works through that Word. That, to me, is the greatest miracle. When you see a person saved and then transformed over a period of time, oh, there's nothing like that. Now, I understand why people might fall into these two camps. I personally am embarrassed by some of the weird stuff that is done in the name of Christianity that is attributed to the Holy Spirit. You can see it on television. But at the same time, I want to see God move in powerful ways. I want to see God do an amazing thing in this country. And I believe that unless God does a powerful work by His Spirit, there is no hope for England. He's got to come in power. But he's got to, he'll, he'll do it through the Word of God. I believe that with all my heart. And so I believe that balance is the key. We need 100% of the Word of God and we need 100% of the Spirit of God. Not one or the other, but both. When I got saved... My pastor said these words, and I've never forgotten them. He said, all word and no spirit, and you dry up. All spirit and no word, and you blow up. But enough of both, and you grow up. And isn't that what we need? A hundred percent of the word of God, a hundred percent of the spirit of God. They're not contrary to one another. I do find this interesting. If you read through the book of Ephesians, you'll find this It says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Filled with the Spirit, do those things. Read through the book of Colossians, and it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Do you see? Filled with the Spirit, filled with the Word, same result. I like that. We need both, don't we? So it's not an either-or thing. We need 100%. We need that balance. So that is striking the balance. Now let's look at number two. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit, first and foremost, is a divine person. He is not an it or a thing or an impersonal force. Now, I know sometimes uh, young believers will, will talk about the Holy Spirit as it. I need more of it or, you know, they kind of refer to him as a thing. And, but as we grow, we should mature out of that and we should realize, you know, he's not that. He is a person. So when we refer to the Holy Spirit, we need to use the personal pronoun him, his. Okay? He is a divine person. He is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Mark 3 verse 29 says, But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. The Holy Spirit himself can be blasphemed. So he's God. Hebrews 9.14 How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He is eternal. Only God is eternal. Only God has no beginning and no end. So here we have the eternal Spirit. And then He is God. We read this in Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we see here that he is co-equal with the Father and with the Son. And so there is in Scripture one God revealed to us in three persons. Three who's, one what? He is God. But not only is he God, he's also, well, I think I've got one more here, don't I? backed it up. Oh, sorry. There we go. He is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. Luke 12, 12 says, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So the Holy Spirit is a person who teaches. We've got Acts 5, 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So the Holy Spirit is a person who can be lied to. He says, notice, you lied to the Holy Spirit, but you have not lied to men, but to God. Again, referring to his divinity. Acts 13, verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So you see here the Holy Spirit speaking. 
Ephesians 4.30 And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit has emotion. He can be grieved. And so speaking there in that passage of lying or saying something bad about a brother or sister or having an unforgiving spirit, these are the things that grieve or make sad the Spirit of God who lives within us. So we see here that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person. And now we're going to be looking at the third part, what the Holy Spirit does. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit regenerates us. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So how are we born again? We're born again by the Spirit of God. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but he has made us alive by the Holy Spirit. So he regenerates us. That's what he does. By the way, this means that every single believer has the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has come inside of your life. He's come inside of your heart. He lives within you. He's made his home in your heart. And so it's not when we're talking about the baptism of the Spirit, we're not talking about receiving the Spirit for the first time. Every believer has the Holy Spirit inside of them. He places believers in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we have been all made to drink into one Spirit. So he takes an unbeliever, and when that person becomes a believer, he baptizes them into the body of Christ. You become unified with the rest of the body of Christ by virtue of partaking of the same Spirit. Not only that, but he seals the believer. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The seal is the seal of ownership. And what that means is, nobody can break that seal. You're God's. And he is going to come back for you and bring you to be with him in heaven. So at Christmas time, if you got a voucher for something that somebody gave you, say from Argos or something, and you go down to the store with your redemption voucher, you you own it, but you just have to go get it. Right? And that's the same way it is with the Lord. He owns us. He has sealed us, but He's coming back for us. And, he, and His Holy Spirit is a guarantee of that. He's coming again for us. Not only does He regenerate us and place us in the body of Christ and seal us, but He also sanctifies us. 2 Corinthians 3.16 But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory 
just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit is daily making us like Jesus Christ. That is God's great plan for each one of us, is He's making us like the Lord Jesus. And one of the great promises that He gives is in uh, 1 John chapter 3, it says that when we see Him, we shall be like Him. That is a wonderful promise. The work of sanctification is going to be complete in each and every one of our lives. God guarantees that. And so that's the job of the Spirit, to make us like Jesus. Not only that, but He convicts us. He convicts unbelievers. Jesus said this in John 16, 8. And when He has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in Me. Of righteousness because I go to My Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. We all have unbelieving family and friends that we're praying for, right? And you can be sure that as you're praying, the Holy Spirit will be at work in their lives, convicting or convincing them of their need for Jesus Christ. Trust in that. But not only does he convict unbelievers, he convicts believers, We read this verse before, Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see, when we sin, the Holy Spirit convicts us. He doesn't condemn us. That's from the enemy. But He convicts us. He he shows us, no, you've sinned. And the fact that we know that we're forgiven and not condemned means that we can deal very, very openly with that sin. Because we don't have to hide. Hey, I'm not condemned. I can name that sin and I can ask the Lord to forgive me and cleanse me of it. And we can deal very directly with it. It's a wonderful thing being uncondemned and dealing with sin. So he says, look, when you're convicted, then just confess it before the Lord. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So that's what he does. He convicts us. He also confirms to us that we are children of God. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know it. If you're a Christian today, you know, because the Holy Spirit is telling you that you are a child of God. I remember the first day I, I received Christ. I walked into the church, head down, unbeliever. I walked out of the church knowing that everything that I'd ever done that God knew all about, was forgiven, and that I was a child of God. Nobody really had to tell me that. The Holy Spirit told me. He witnessed to my own heart. Not only that, but He helps us. And oh, how we need this. John 14, 16. And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, it's interesting that the the word another there, you see another helper, literally means another of the exact same kind. You ever wondered what it would have been like to be one of the disciples there? Being with Jesus for three and a half years or thereabouts, and he says, I'm going away. And you start to think, don't go. (laughs) 
it's really nice having you here. When we're in a jam, I mean, you just tell us to go fishing and we can pull out a coin out of a fish's mouth. Or, you know, if we don't have any bread, you can multiply these loaves and fishes. It's, a, it's great having you around. And he says, well, here's what I'm going to do. When I go away, I'm going to give you another one of the exact same kind to be with you forever. That's a great comfort. In fact, Jesus said, it's better that I go away. For if I don't go away, I won't send him to you. That must have blown their minds. It's better for you to go? Why? Because he was with them, but when he sent the Spirit, he would actually come to live inside of them. That's better. Quite a thought. Look at Romans 8.26 in the New Living Translation. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. He helps us in our prayer lives. We're often stumped in what to pray, but the Holy Spirit will give us the words we need and even groans that God can interpret. Not not only that, but He guides us into all truth. John 16, 13. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. He exalts the name of Jesus. John 16, 14. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And he produces fruit in our lives. Galatians 5.22 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then finally, what does the Holy Spirit do? He empowers us. And I'd like you to turn with me to Acts chapter 1 the companion book to the book of Luke, written by the same author. Acts chapter 1, and verse 4. And this is what I want to focus on in our remaining time together, is this empowerment. It says, In being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The promise of the Father was the promise that he had spoken in Luke chapter 24 of this endowment with power by the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Greek word for power there is dunamis. It's where we get our English words dynamic or even dynamite. So what he's saying is there is a dynamic power or a dynamite type power that is going to come upon you when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to baptize you. It literally comes from a Greek word, uh, the Greek word dunamis, which means to be able So how are we going to go out, Lord, and be a witness 
in all the world, He's going to give you this ability to do it. Their commission was impossible, humanly speaking, but the Holy Spirit would give them the power. Now, when Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit, He used three Greek prepositions. The three Greek prepositions are with, in, and upon. In John 14, 6, we we read this before. For he dwells with you, which is the Greek word para, and will be in you, which is the Greek word en, E-N. So he talks about the Holy Spirit being with, but also the Holy Spirit being in. But now in in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, it says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is the Greek word epi, E-P-I. It literally means coming upon or overflow. So I want to give you just a a little illustration here with this glass of water. I'm just going to move this over so that those who are listening. Let's imagine that this... A jug of water represents the Holy Spirit. It's filled up to the top. Let's imagine that this glass represents you and me. So, we've got three Greek prepositions here for the Holy Spirit. He is with us. So, in other words, He comes alongside of us. But Jesus said then, He'll be in us. So, when we become believers then the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us like this. But then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This is the third Greek preposition, epi. And so this means the overflow. And so the Holy Spirit just comes upon and overflows our lives so that in the world, the world can taste and see that the Lord is good. So, a Christian is not to be a container for the Holy Spirit. A Christian is to be a conduit for the Holy Spirit then to overflow so that the whole world is blessed. Now, notice the result. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. He doesn't say, you might be. He says, you shall be witnesses to me. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you're overflowing, you shall be a witness. And again, a witness is somebody that speaks of what he's seen and heard. The Greek word literally is martus. It's where we get our word martyr. And when you think of a martyr, you think of somebody that, whose life is completely given over to a cause. The greatest way that you can be a witness for Jesus Christ is in the life that you lead before unbelievers. That is the greatest example of a witness. Because people are going to see a change in your life. And not only a life, but then the words that you speak. But if your life doesn't match the words that you use, you invalidate the words you use by the life that you lead. So the life has to come. And then the words come out. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when we witness, we're witnessing with our lives and with our words. 
You know that the world is constantly pressuring you and me. Constantly trying to push us back and keep us from being a witness. So we need a greater power. I was um, listening on the radio a couple weeks back. It was the 30th anniversary of when they discovered the, the remains of the Titanic. And you know, in this deep sea exploration, they make these little submarines very, very powerful in order to withstand the pressures down miles deep in the ocean. Now, if that little submarine was not stronger than the environment that it was going down into, it would just crumple up like a piece of tissue. You know? But if the pressure within that thing is greater than the pressure outside of it, it can survive in that environment. This is the same thing that happens with a Christian. You see, the world is pressuring us. The devil is pressuring us. Even our own flesh is pressuring us, saying, don't talk about Jesus. Don't live for Jesus. And we've got to have a power within us that is greater than the power in the world. 1 John 4, 4. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit wants to give us that power that we might push down and move forward. Otherwise, we're just going to be retreating and retreating and retreating. And you know, that's the way a lot of Christians are. They've just retreated and they're just clinging on, saying, I can't wait for the rapture. Rather than taking ground and saying, no, we've got work to do. I really appreciate what you said earlier, Barry. We've got our eyes looking at Jesus and we know that he's coming soon. But there is work for us to do. And it's eternal work. And God's given each one of us a sphere of influence in which we can work. In our families. In our communities. With all our friends. At work, at school, wherever we may be. What happened when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples? Well, these former cowards became bold as lions. And the Bible says the righteous are bold as lions. They had all once denied him. Fear ruled the day. But then they became bold in their witness. And we read in Acts chapter 2 that Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost. This one who'd formerly denied the Lord when he said he wouldn't. And he preached and 3,000 people got saved. And then again in Acts chapter 3, they saw that lame man there at the gate beautiful they healed him in the name of Jesus. All these people came rushing around to say, basically, how did you do that? And Peter said, why do you look at us as if by our own power and godliness we made this man walk? It's by the name of Jesus that this man is made whole before you. And beginning right there, he began to preach Jesus Christ to them. 2,000 more people got saved. And then we read on in Acts chapter 4. The the apostles got arrested for preaching. And you know what they did? They went and had a prayer meeting and they said, Lord, give us the power of the Holy Spirit so we can go back and do what got us arrested in the first place. That's bold. That's incredible, isn't it? Etc., etc. We see this going out through the whole of the book of Acts. We get to Acts chapter 17. They're in Thessalonica. And they say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They were just fishermen. They were just simple people. Tax collectors. 
And yet God empowered them by the Spirit and they turned the world upside down or better put right side up. We call the, the, acts, the acts of the apostles, but what is it really? It's the acts of the Holy Spirit. It's Him working through simple people just like you and me. Now, does this baptism of the Holy Spirit happen when we're saved or after we're saved? Well, it can happen simultaneously, but more often it happens afterward and should carry on happening in the life of the believer every single day. We need the power of the Spirit the moment that we wake up in the morning. Before we go down to see the children at breakfast, to, to meet our spouse, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon our lives if we're going to live for Jesus. Now, you're there in Acts chapter 1. I want you just to look back to John chapter 20. It's probably a page backwards for you. Look in John chapter 20 and verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This happened before Pentecost. Now, some will read that and they'll say, Well, that was symbolic. But in my way of interpreting the scriptures, when Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit, they receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. I can't see any other way of getting around that. I'm not going to allegorize it and say something else. I'm going to take it at face value. They received the Spirit. Which tells me that when they got to Acts chapter 1, and he says, you need to wait here until... You're baptized in the Spirit. They had the Spirit in them, but they needed the power of the Spirit to come upon them. I want to read to you what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this very issue. And again, he was 30 years pastor of Westminster Chapel. In his book, The Christian Warfare and Exposition of Ephesians 6, he said these words, there is nothing I am convinced that so quenches the Spirit as the teaching which identifies the baptism of the Holy Ghost with regeneration. But it is a very commonly held teaching today. Indeed, it has been the popular view for many years. It is said that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is non-experimental. That is, it happens to everyone at regeneration. And so we say, Oh, well, I am already baptized with the Spirit. It happened when I was born again, at my conversion. There is nothing for me to seek. I have got it all. Got it all, he says? Well, if you have got it all, I simply ask in the name of God, why are you as you are? If you have got it all, why are you so unlike the apostles? Why are you so unlike the New Testament Christians? Now, the reason why I like to bring up Martin Lloyd-Jones is because here was a truly biblical man. He was one of the last great Bible expositors that this country produced. We have 
one more here, I believe. But I, I believe that when Martin Lloyd-Jones was speaking of this, he's saying, look, we need to be careful that we don't just say, oh yeah, that's it. I don't have anything more to seek with the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 tells us that we are to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Ongoing. We need not only to be regenerated, but we need to be filled every single day. It's not just a one-time event. Charles Spurgeon said these words, I believe, brethren, that whenever the church of God declines, one of the most effectual ways of reviving her is to preach much truth concerning the Holy Spirit. After all, He is the very breath of the church, where the Spirit of God is, is the power. If the Spirit be withdrawn, then the vitality of the godliness begins to decline and we are backbiting. Let us turn to the Spirit of God, crying, Quicken thou me in thy way. If we sorrowfully perceive that any church is growing lukewarm, be it our prayer that the Holy Spirit may work graciously for its revival. Let us return to the Lord. Let us seek again to be baptized into the Holy Spirit and into fire, and we shall yet again behold the wonderful works of the Lord. He sets before us an open door, and if we enter not, we ourselves are to be blamed. Do you really believe in the baptism of the Spirit? Do you really believe that God has power for you to be a witness, to push back when the world is pushing on you, to push back when the devil is saying, shut up, don't live like this, when you're retreating? Are we just giving lip service when we say that we believe in the Holy Spirit? We believe in His gifts and power. Are we willing to let Him empower us? Walter Lewis Wilson was a medical doctor and Christian, and he agonized over his fruitless efforts at witnessing. One day in 1913, a French missionary visiting in the Wilson home asked the doctor, who is the Holy Spirit to you? Wilson replied, gave his stock answer, one of the persons of the Godhead, teacher, guide, third person of the Trinity. Full stop. The friend challenged Wilson, you haven't answered my question. To this, Wilson replied sadly, well, he is nothing to me. I have no contact with him and could get along quite well without him. The next year, on January 14, 1914, Wilson heard a sermon by James M. Gray, who was later to become president of Moody Bible Institute. Speaking from Romans 12.1, Gray leaned over the pulpit and said, Have you noticed that this verse does not tell us whom we should give our bodies? It is not the Lord Jesus. He has his own body. It is not the Father. He remains on his throne. Another has come to earth without a body. God gives you the indescribable honor of presenting your bodies to the Holy Spirit to be his dwelling place on earth. Wilson returned home and fell on the carpet. There in the quiet of that late hour, he said, My Lord, I have treated you like a servant. When I wanted you, I called for you. Now I give you this body from my head to my feet. 
I give you my hands, my limbs, my eyes, my lips, my brain. You may send this body to Africa or lay it on a bed with cancer. It is your body from this moment on. The next morning, two ladies came to Wilson's office selling advertising. He promptly led both to Christ. And that was the beginning of a life of evangelistic fruitfulness. And he said this, With regard to my own experience with the Holy Spirit, the transformation in my life on January 14, 1914, was much greater than the change that took place when I was saved on December 21, 1896. There is this work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives to transform each one of us into living witnesses for Jesus. And I want to ask you that question that was asked to this doctor. Who is the Holy Spirit to you? Could you get along quite well without Him? Or are you depending on Him every single day for your power? You know, when you go into your kitchen... You might hear a little motor running. It's the motor that that runs your refrigerator. Well, the motor is doing all the work to cool that thing down, but it relies completely on mains power. And if the mains power is shut off, everything in your fridge and freezer spoils. Maybe you've seen that happen. You see, you're going to be doing that work, but you're relying completely on mains power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we close, we're going to go over four ways that you can experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Number one is get in the game. Serve God. Share your faith. You don't need the power of the Holy Spirit to do nothing for God. You don't need the Holy Spirit and his power to sit on the bench. So get in the game. If you're not sharing your faith, pray that God would give you opportunities to share your faith. One other caution here. Sometimes, as Bible-believing Christians, we begin to play a defensive game. We, be, we begin to wage a defensive war. We just look around at all the bad stuff that's happening out there, and we can name it from a mile away. But you can never win a defensive war. It's good to have discernment like that, but that's not the end of the game. You need to go on the offensive and share your faith. And so get in the game. Number two, desire it. Desire the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. If you desire this righteous work of God in your life, He will fill you. By the way, how long did the early church wait from the time that Jesus told them to wait till the Spirit came on them at Pentecost? Ten days. Remember, he walked with them 40 days after he resurrected. Pentecost came 50 days after he resurrected. Imagine, they're waiting and waiting and waiting. They dared not go out until the power of the Spirit came upon them. Desire it. That was great desire. Number three, hate sin. Have no secret love for sin that is sure to quench the spirit moving in your life. And number four, ask. This is so wonderful. Jesus said these marvelous words. 
If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who simply ask? Simply ask Him. He wants to give you His power. In Ephesians 5.18, again, be being filled with the Spirit. Remember what we read back in Luke 24. He said, Repentance and remission of sins shall be preached in all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. As we close, I want to ask you that question. What is your Jerusalem? Where do you begin? Your Jerusalem is in your home, amongst your family members, and then amongst your friends, and then amongst your colleagues or those you go to school with. That's your Jerusalem. Begin there. And then God will move you out from there. I'm going to close with this brief article. This is an article that came out from Matthias Media in 2011. And it says, does the future have a church? Not does the church have a future, but does the future have a church? It was written here in this country by Matthias Media. And they conclude that in the UK... 2% of the population are Christians. Just 2%. And this is what they say. The institutional church in the UK looks big. There are church buildings everywhere. There are bishops entrenched in the political system. There are the echoes of Christian thinking and philosophy embedded in British law and society. But the number of evangelical Christians is actually quite small. Even if you count all those who identify themselves as evangelicals, We are only about 2% of the population. And the proportion that is actively promoting evangelical doctrine is significantly less. Could it be that we are living in a time much more like the first century than any other of the last 15? When we look out at a world that has never heard the gospel, which rejects Christian morality, which thinks of Christians and churches as weird then we're looking at a world Paul, John, Peter, and the first churches looked at. What did they do? They were grieved over the ignorance and superstition, and they did something. They talked to all sorts of people about the gospel, and what happened? Many sneered, some listened, and a few turned to Christ. May God grant us the same grief, the same gospel hearts, and the same result. Heavenly Father, I want to pray now for us as a group of Christians gathered here to hear this message. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to come upon us in power. Father, we desire that. We turn from sin and we ask you right now to fill us afresh. We ask you, Lord, to make us bold witnesses. We ask you, Lord, to open doors in our Jerusalem, in our immediate circle of influence, that we might be able to impact those for Jesus Christ. We're just simple people, but we're willing. And so we want you to use us, Lord. We ask you to use us whatever the cost may be to us personally. 
Lord, we want to pray for Portsmouth. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would come and convict sin. Convict those of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We want to pray for the south, Lord, the south of England. We pray, Father, that you would just cause many people to come to know Jesus. We pray for England, Lord. We pray that you would just raise up your people throughout this land. Strengthen the churches. Lord, we pray that you pour out your spirit upon your people. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing, but we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.